Grace and peace to you today. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to week two of the series we're calling In the Garden, where we're taking a look at the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And we're taking a look at the prayer uh, from the point of view and the premise that prayers like not my will do not just happen. They don't occur naturally in our lives. It is not a naturally human thing to pray, not my will, but yours be done. And so, with the understanding that a prayer like that, a radical prayer like that, does not just happen naturally, we're looking back at Jesus' life with the thought that certain events of his life and the way he responded to those events led him to the garden, led him to the place where he could relinquish his will for what God wanted from his life and for his life. And today we're gonna be taking a look at the first significant event of Jesus' adult life, his baptism, uh, when he begins his public ministry. It's the event that inaugurates his public ministry. But before we do that, we're going to talk today a lot about sound and a lot about hearing because there's some distinguishing events to Jesus' baptism. And to get us into the frame of mind of talking about hearing and, and sound, I want to talk to you about the role that sound and hearing has had in my life, particularly in regards to music. And I want to be honest here that I'm going to unveil some musical dirty secrets about myself so much so that you may no longer trust me to lead you in musical worship, but that's okay because this is a place where faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. So I'm going to be musically authentic with you all this morning, and I'm going to tell you uh, of my journey into listening to music and how that journey has changed over time and also shaped me. So my story with music starts somewhere around, I'm guessing, four, five, or six years old. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about my life then. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and right around that age, my parents gave me a record player, because we had those things back then. And they put it in my room, and I don't know if they had a subscription or if they just bought a collection of these, but what I received around about this age were uh, vinyl versions of the Disney movies, right? So understand, this is before VHS, before DVDs, before any type of home theater experience, right? So my parents gave, they had, I don't know even how many. I know I had Cinderella. I know I had Sleeping Beauty. I know I had Robin Hood. Anybody remember the animated Robin Hood? Oh, I love those things. Uh, I had a few more, and they were audio versions of the movies, okay? I don't know how much they were edited. They might have been shortened in time. I don't really know. But I would sit there, and I would just put them on, and I would listen to the stories. And I think that uh, I, I have this ability to, I've always had a, a really natural ability or cultivated ability to mimic um, do different accents and stuff like that. Sometimes I think it started here because I would listen to these 
Disney movies, and I would just try to do the characters, right? I would get into it, and I would just say all the lines of dialogue. I've got probably much more of the dialogue of Cinderella memorized than any grown man should. <laughs> but there were also the songs, right? Disney always, always had songs. Now, they might not have been as pervasive and, I dare say, annoying as something like Let It Go. <laughs> but they were there. And so I would sing the songs, man. I would get into the songs. And, and uh, so what I want to do is I want to share with you sort of my first earliest musical memory. I loved this song. I loved this song more than any other Disney song. And I'm just going to play you a piece of it right now. It goes like this from this movie. Now I'm the king of the swingers. Oh, Anybody the remember this? Beyond. Yes. Thank you. I reached the top and had to stop. And Some people are singing. That's okay. You can me. sing. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll okay. right into town. So, this was the thing that sort of set me off on this direction. And a little funny note, like understand that I had not seen all these movies, right? So I'm hearing the songs and I have no idea what's going on. It was decades before I actually saw The Jungle Book. And I realized like, well, this is kind of what's going on in the background. I had to invent my own scene in, the, in my head of what these songs were accompanying. So I, I learned to sing really by listening to stuff like that and singing along with it and just enjoying it. But I got a little bit older. My family moved from Pennsylvania to Texas. I got a slightly larger record player and I got some more vinyl. And I don't know how I came across this particular piece of vinyl. I'm sure it came from my father, uh, but it went something like this. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Good, right? I, I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine oh. since I don't know where. All right, that's I'm good. Stuck in he was so cool. Oh, man. So, so I learned to uh, then start singing to this stuff. I had, I had uh, a Folsom Prison, I also had Live at San Quentin, which has uh, this song, A Boy Named Sue, on it. Anybody know this song? And I'll just confess, like when I was young, I used to love singing because, you know, he, he drops the big profanity at the end. And as a little guy, I always be like, oh, if I sing it, it doesn't count as cussing. Um, <laughs> so I would totally sing it. You guys know the part I'm talking about because I'm the dirty old uh, that bleepity bleep that named you Sue. Right. So that was the second major sort of turn in my, in my musical development. Uh, and shortly after that, Things took a little bit of a darker turn, I'm going to com confess to you, but all I can say is that, hey, it was the 80s, everybody was doing it, you really couldn't escape it, um, but things started sounding and looking like this. Yeah, I kind of want to be ashamed, but it sounds so good. Um, so, anybody know what record this comes off of? Pyromania. Thank you. You could not escape this record. This was like 1983, maybe. Um, and I had just started playing guitar. And I'm sorry, like, hair metal is just part of my musical journey. Um, like I said, I kind of want to be ashamed of it, but I kind of like it, too. Um, so this is where I, I lived and breathed for a while, but thankfully, 
I didn't stay there. So a short time after I discovered Def Leppard, I discovered this guy. See who that is? Who? Eric Clapton. That's good, Ramsey. So this was the blues. I discovered the blues um, and, and Clapton, and uh, that fed my guitar playing instinct, and I just kind of kept growing and kept listening and kept loving music. And then eventually, around 1987, discovered these guys. Oh, don't they look so dreamy? But they're so serious. They're like, what's wrong? Like, you are selling millions of records. Can you not smile a little bit? Great sounding record. That's good. Thanks, Ramsey. I still remember, I remember exactly where I was the first time I saw the video for that song. Because I saw the video before I heard it. I remember sitting down and like a whole new musical world opened up for me um, with you 2 So that's sort of, if, that's sort of the major turns of my musical life and, and the role that sound and listening played in my life. And there's radically different musical experiences there, trust me, radically different from show tunes to glam metal to you know, alternative music. But the thing that, I was, that struck me about music and when I was young was the way I responded to it and the way I experienced it. Now, this is just me. But those early years, what all of those pieces of music and all of those artists had in common was that when I heard them, music was just this mysterious, wonderful event that happened in front of me and around me. And what I mean by that is, I did not know how to make music, especially when I was five or six. I didn't know how the different instruments contributed to make the song sound the way it sounded. I just knew I loved it. It was all-encompassing for me. I couldn't discern whether the guitar was playing low on the neck or high on the neck. I didn't know what the drums were doing. I just knew that it was something that I wanted to be a part of. And I just got into it and I would just sing. And the thing is that music didn't always stay that way for me. Because as I started to play guitar, I played a whole lot of guitar in my teens. I played a whole lot of guitar in my 20s. I played a whole lot of guitar in my 30s. And over time, my experience of music began to change. Because instead of just perceiving it as this totality, this wonderful, mysterious event, I began to learn how those events were made. I learned to, be, I learned to understand how you crafted a song. And, and this really became apparent to me just a couple years ago. Because I was on my way to a meeting at Red Eye and I heard a song, another song from my high school time, another song from that musically dubious decade called the 80s. And all of a sudden I heard it differently. And, and I'm sorry, I have to subject you to this. This is the song, wait. The only way this could be more awkward for me to unveil this to you is if I was actually in this video. I'm not, trust me, but roll this. Oh. Anybody know this song? Thank you. Thank you for sharing my shame. The hair. The hair. 
Okay. So I heard that. You can stop singing now. Um, I, I heard that song in, in, when I heard it when I was, you know, whatever, 15, 14, 17, whatever it was. You know, I heard it the same way I heard all the music at that time. It was just this mysterious thing that happened. This event that just made me want to sing and, and, uh, and, and, and play and be a part of it. But when I heard it a couple years ago, I heard it completely differently. All of a sudden, when I heard it a couple years ago, I'm like, I know exactly what those guitars are doing without even having a guitar in my hand. I'm like, I know what they're playing. In fact, I've played so much music at this point that I know probably what guitars they're playing. I think I know what type of amps they're playing. I know what type of, of effects they're using. I know what the producer's doing to craft this song. It doesn't diminish the power of sound. It doesn't diminish the power of music. But it affected me differently. And we're talking a lot today about the power of sound and speaking and voices. And so what I want to do is turn in your Bible, if you have one, to uh, Mark chapter 1. There will be scriptures on the screens. And I want to spend some time looking at Jesus' baptism. Now, as we get into this, I want to let you know that uh, just like the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' baptism appears in all four Gospels. Okay, and we, mo we mentioned last week that when a story appears in all four Gospels, you need to sit up and take notice. There's something significant about this story. All four Gospel writers said, you need to know this story. So Mark and Matthew's version are quite similar, and we're going to primarily be taking a look at those. Luke has a slightly different take on the baptism story. John does not name the baptism event exactly, but he assumes it. So if you read John's gospel, you will see talk of Jesus' baptism around, even if there's not a specific story. So Mark 1, verse 9. One day... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Now, before we move on, I also want to read Matthew's story. Subtle differences in Matthew's account. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, or verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. This is different. John says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? Jesus says, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptism, baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So here's what I want to do today. I want to take a look at the elements of this baptism. I want to take a look at what is going on in the baptism. I want to take a look at what some of the people who were there might have understood or heard, or seen. Then I want to take a look at what Jesus' baptism meant for him. And then hopefully, most importantly, I want to take a look at what Jesus' baptism and what happens at that baptism means for us. 
So let's start with the basics. Baptism. You've got Jesus there. You've got John there. You've got a crowd there. The crowd is Jewish. You've got a couple other elements that we need to uh, put in. There is water, right? Jesus goes into the water. He comes out of the water. There's a voice that speaks. This is the voice. Come on. And then you have the dove. If you guys know anything about me, you, you, you would know that when I went into the hunting aisle at Academy to buy this, I felt a little bit out of my element. But I made it. So these three elements, we'll get there, we'll get to this, but these three elements, the voice, the water, the dove, all interact in a very, very interesting way here. But before we get to that, first we want to talk about baptism. Okay, what is it? Uh, baptism is not a uniquely Christian activity. Okay, lots of world religions have forms of baptism. Ancient Judaism had a form of baptism, actually a couple different forms. In general, what baptism was in Jesus's time was an opportunity to symbolically cleanse yourself. Okay, water, just always recognized as a cleansing agent. And so in Jesus's culture, if something was going on that you wanted to prepare for, a big event in your life, a major undertaking, a dream that you wanted to reach out and get, or reach out and try for, you might go somewhere where there was what they called living water, which is running water. So a stream, a brook, a river, and you would baptize yourself. You would enter the water. You would symbolically cleanse yourself. And then you would prepare to undertake whatever it is that God was calling you to do at the time. But this guy, John, shows up. And John changes the baptism game. And I don't want to blow anybody up here, but just because he's called John the Baptist does not mean that he is a Baptist from a denomination standpoint, okay? Really, the way I prefer to understand his name, because the Baptist is not his last name either, I prefer to, to have him known as John the Baptizer. The Baptizer. He was a baptizing fool. It was the center of his ministry. That's what he did. He called people out, come be baptized. But John's baptism was different than the baptism I just described. Because John said, first of all, you don't do this yourself. You don't just wander off into any stream or river and baptize yourself. This baptism is different. John says, you do this one time. This is one baptism. And John says, this baptism is a big deal. This baptism symbolizes you pointing your life radically back to God. And then John says, and in that act, when you repent, you need to know that God has forgiven your sins. It's a radical thing, okay? And it's radical also because of where John's doing this. It says he's in the Jordan River and he's really close to Jerusalem. Now, in the Jewish culture, what's in Jerusalem is the temple. And in their world, there's only one place that the forgiveness of sins can happen. And do you know where that is? It's in the temple. So when John shows up 
outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple and says, hey, come be baptized. Come turn your life back to God and God will forgive your sins. The religious authorities are like, whoa, what are you doing? And John's basically saying, you don't know what God's up to. Forgiveness now can happen outside of the temple. Forgiveness now can happen in the wilderness. But interestingly enough, there's another little thread of baptism that comes into this. And that is right around this time, the Jews begin to develop this practice of baptism as a conversion symbol. So what they would say is that, hey, if you're not born a Jew and you wanna become a Jew, well, first of all, there's this thing called circumcision, but we'll get to that later. You have to be baptized. To convert to Judaism, you have to be baptized, which is not in and of itself a big deal, except that John's baptizing people who are already Jewish. And so in John's baptism is also this thread that says it's not enough to be born Jewish. When you get baptized by John, it's like you're converting again. And John's saying it's no longer enough just to have the right last name or the right family or to be born in the right place or the right time. You have to make some kind of decision that you're going to point your life in a certain direction. All of these things make John very unpopular with the religious leaders of his day. But Jesus shows up. Jesus is John's cousin. Anybody knows that? His cousin shows up, Jesus. And he's like, I want to be baptized. And John knows right then, wait, my baptism is for repentance and forgiveness of sin. Does Jesus need to repent of anything? Not according to the Bible. And as a people of faith, we understand Jesus to be without sin. But Jesus says, this is the way it has to be. And John struggles with that. And personally, I think that there's something so poignant about Jesus' actions here because Jesus understands that God is not above humbling himself. So even though Jesus doesn't need to repent, he does it because Jesus is not above humbling himself and not about submitting to his cousin's baptism. So he goes into the water. He comes out of the water and it says the heavens split open. Now, you don't need to understand this as literally like a fabric tearing. The ancients understood heaven splitting open as one of those moments where time feels infused with something supernatural. Has anybody ever like seen an amazing sunset or heard your child cry for the first time? Did it seem like it was a little more real than real? Did it seem like the lights were just a little bit more bright than they should be? That is a moment that is like the heavens being torn open. When you can see that there's more to this world than what meets the eye. So they're torn open. And the spirit comes down like a dove. Now, this used to mess with me because I always understood literally, I thought it was a dove, like a bird came out of the sky, 
Jesus comes up and the bird's like, bam. And Jesus is like, Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder. It's not like that, right? The writer says, it's like a dove. It's like a dove. I don't, I don't know how it was like a dove. It could have been gentle, just descended and landed on him. Could have been a form. Uh, I don't know. But the point is, it is the spirit, right? Don't get caught up on the form. It's the spirit. So what I want to do now is explore these three elements, water, spirit, voice. Because these three elements combine to make this event cataclysmic, earth-changing. And I think if you were Jewish and you saw this happen, you might have some certain reactions to what you're seeing. And what I want to do is explore those. So if you saw this man come up out of the water and you saw something like a dove come down from the sky and then you heard a voice, you might start thinking about Genesis 1. Because if you were Jewish, you knew your story. And Genesis 1 reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was formless and empty. And what? The Spirit of God hovers over what? The waters. Next verse. Then God said, let there be light. God speaks. We have a voice. So in Genesis 1, we have what? Water, spirit, voice. And if you knew this Genesis story, which you probably would if you were Jewish, what might come to your mind is that, oh my gosh, creation is starting new. Something in what just happened means that God is starting a new creation again. And if you remember what God always said when he created the earth and, uh, earth and uh, the heavens and everything in it, he had this adjective that he would use. He would create something and he would say that it was good. So maybe you see Jesus come out of the water and you go, ooh, something new's happening and it's gonna be good. Or, you might think of Genesis 8. Now, Genesis 8 is the story of Noah, right? Guy, boat, animals, 40 days of rain, and then he's floating around. And listen to these verses in Genesis 8. He, this is Noah, he also released a dove to see if the water had receded and it could find dry ground. But the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. So it returned to the boat and Noah held out his hand and drew the dove back inside. After waiting another seven days, Noah releases the dove again. This time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. He finds land. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. He waited another seven days to release the dove again. And this time the dove does not come back because it finds dry land, right? So what do we have in this story? We have waters, we have a dove. But the significance is really in what the, in what the flood means and what this means. 
Because if you knew the story of the flood, you would know that the reason God flooded the earth was because humanity had gotten so sideways that God said, we've got to start over. So the flood is this uncomfortable, intense judgment that God brings to the earth. And when the dove finds dry land, it means that the judgment is over and renewal has started. So when you see this man come up and you see this thing that looks like a dove and there's water there, maybe if you're thinking about Noah, you go, whatever judgment has been going on, it's over. The dove has come. He's going to find dry land. God is starting over. It's time to be renewed. It's time to find a place to land and be safe. Maybe if you saw this, you would think of some scriptures out of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament And he writes and combines these images in really interesting ways, in powerful ways. So Isaiah 42 says this, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. Now, does that sound a little bit like what the voice says? This is my son whom I dearly love. Everything he does pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. So we have a voice, we have a spirit. The voice is speaking things that get spoken to Jesus. In Isaiah 45, open up, O heavens, tear the heavens apart, pour out righteousness and let the earth open wide so that salvation and righteousness can sprout up together. I, the Lord, created them. So you have this image of the heavens separating and something coming down while salvation and righteousness springs up, kind of like a man coming out of the waters. And then lastly, Isaiah cries out to God, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down and how the mountains would quake in your presence. So if you knew Isaiah and if you saw this man coming out, coming up out of the water and something coming down to meet him that looks like God's spirit and then the voice saying, this is my son. He pleases me. I dearly love him. And you knew your Isaiah verses. You would probably say something or think something like the age of salvation is here because that's what all those verses speak about. That there was gonna come a time when God would bring everything back together and make it all right. And you might think that. The last thing you might think is your mind might go to Exodus. This is uh, very interesting to me. So in Exodus four, this guy Moses goes to Pharaoh. Israel is enslaved. And God says, say this to Pharaoh. He says, you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, right? I commanded you, let my son go. What does the voice say to Jesus? You are my son. And then in Exodus, God says, 
Israel is my son. And there's this really profound, interesting theological thing that happens in that God says, Israel is my son, and God's son is also my people. They represent each other. So when God says to Jesus, you are my son, somehow he's saying, Jesus, symbolically, you are now representing the people of God. If you wanted to say it a different way, you might say it this way, that in the Bible, what's true of the king or the Messiah is true of God's people. So when Jesus is in the water and he says, this is my son, he's also saying, my people are here as well. And if you know the Exodus story, okay, what, how does Israel escape from Egypt? What do they go through to get out of Egypt? They go through the waters. Then they wander 40 years in the desert and they come to the promised land. And how do they get into the promised land? Anybody know? They cross through the Jordan. And where's John baptizing people? Ooh, ooh, wait a minute. So maybe if you see all this happening and you say, wait a minute, God's son, it says he's God's son. God's people are God's son. He's in the Jordan River. Maybe, maybe what God is saying also or what you might see is there's a new exodus going on. Whatever I was enslaved to, I'm being liberated from. That we are crossing into the promised land again through this act I think that anybody seeing Jesus being baptized could have had any of these thoughts. Why? Because they knew their story. They lived their story. But what did it mean for Jesus? I think this is really interesting. You see, I want to return to the idea of sound. Sound is a unique phenomenon. And hearing is a unique phenomenon sense, okay? Take your eyesight, for example. Eyesight is relatively a passive sense, or a passive sense. We, we register things in the world. They, they, they work into the mechanics of the eye. They project images onto our brain. We experience sound. But we don't project, we don't like make beams come out of our eyes. We don't project light beams back out of our eyeballs in any type of tangible way. Same thing with a sense of smell. We, we take in aroma, it registers in our brain. But unless you are a teenage boy, you don't really project a smell. I have one, so... But hearing and, 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 and sound is different because almost from the moment you begin to hear, what do you begin to do? Speak. Hearing is this active sense, this active phenomenon that we, we take in sound and then we instantly begin to use that sound to organize our life and to make sense of our world. And I'm just conjecturing here, but I would probably say that the, the first words that we hear are probably the most important words that we ever hear as human beings. When we can understand them. And what is the first word that Jesus 
hears as he goes into this ministry. This is my son who I what? Dearly love. I grew up knowing this verse as like, this is my beloved son. And I think what this means to Jesus is that I would dare say that this is the most important voice that Jesus hears. It's the voice that calls him the beloved. I think if you hear this, I mean really hear it. I think hearing the voice that calls you the beloved changes everything. I think it changed everything for us as well. Let me read a, a real short scripture out of the gospel of John. I said that John kind of uh, uses the baptism uh, in, a, in a framework. He has this prologue in his, in his gospel. John 1, chapter 12. Listen, he says, To all who believed him, him as Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become Children of God. Jesus is God's son. John says, if you want this, then God will make you his child too. And what's the first thing that God says to his son? You are my son. You are dearly loved What's the first thing that God wants to say to you? You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. You ever think about that? And what I love about this story is it happens before Jesus has done anything. Now, I get it. He's Jesus, right? But wouldn't it be easier for God to say this at the end, after Jesus has like raised some people from the dead and done some healings and fed 5,000 people. I think the way it would work in, in the Bible, if I wrote it, I'd put this at the end, right? After you've done all this awesome stuff. This is my beloved son. I'm so proud of him. See all the good things he's done. Where does, it, where does God put it? He puts it before Jesus has done anything. The first thing that God wants to say to you is not get your act together. It's not try harder. It's not do good things. The first thing that God wants to say to you is that you are my beloved. That's so different. You see, I, think, I used to think that God was really good at tolerating me. That Jesus died so that God could tolerate my sin. That God could make me better and I, I do believe he can and will. Brothers and sisters, that's a radically different thing than saying that the God of the universe has a radical affection for you. And that if you crack open your heart just a little bit 
And you say, I wanna try this God thing out. I wanna allow, maybe there's a chance. I think some of us, we do that and then we think that God's gonna turn our eyes to him and the first thing we're gonna see is just a shaking of his head. Or maybe a, well, it's about time. Or well, it's a, well, I guess I'll take you. I mean, I got to because of Jesus. What if the truth of the matter is, and I believe that it is, that the moment you turn to God, God says, oh, my beloved, I've waited so long for you. What if the God of the universe has a furious, irrepressible love and affection for you? Would that change things for you? It changes things for me. I think it changes things in a way for Jesus. Because when you know at the deepest core of your being that the word that's pronounced over you is love, affection, acceptance, I think you can endure a lot of things, just like Jesus does. I think when you know that you're the beloved, you can tolerate rejection. You can go toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of your, of your life. You can dream big. You can fail. You can even be betrayed by your friends because you know at the deepest part of you, you are loved and that can never be taken. Oh, and that's beautiful. That's priceless. I wouldn't trade that for the world. What's the first word in your life that you hear? If it's not the beloved of God, then God's got a message for you. Just a couple more words about this. The beloved is not something that happens one time for most of us. For me, I have to wake up every day and seek that word. Not because of anything wrong with me or anything wrong with God, but because there's so many other voices in my life that would tell me otherwise. Most of the voices in my life are not gonna tell me you are radically and unequivocally accepted. Most of the voices in my life are gonna tell you, I love you if, I'll accept you if, I'll tolerate you if. And it's my job every day is to sit in front of of this God who will not be denied if I can just be quiet enough and say, tell me again, tell me again. And what's the great thing about God is that he doesn't care, he'll do it. He'll be like, okay, I'll tell you again. You wanna hear it? Eric, you're my beloved. That's better than like Mufasa. What are the voices that you hear in your life? What voices speak into you? What do they say? This is the first thing that happens in Jesus' adult life. And I think it's the most profound. Before he does a thing, he knows. He sets foot knowing that he is the beloved of God and nothing will take that from him. And I think it's one of the things that allows him to pray the prayer, not my will, because he knows that no matter what happens, he will be the beloved of God. And that is true of us 
as well. And when you understand this, get ready. Because it's going to change a lot. Let's stand up. Closing prayer. Thank you.